Today's scripture reading is found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is God's word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to the book of First John as we pray together this Lord's Day. God, we gather this morning with great joy, remembering and reflecting on the fact that your Son came into the world for the sake of our redemption. We praise you today because it is all that we have to offer you in response. As we, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to be reminded of the hope that we have in the gospel, that our joy in you and our praise to you would be all the greater. We ask these things, Lord, in your, in your Son's name, amen. Well, at Christmas time, as you well know, one of the ways that we show love to the people in our lives is by the giving of gifts. And that often means a lengthy process of searching for just the perfect thing to give. For some people, let's admit, that's a process that began yesterday. But most of the time, most of the time, that's a process that was begun months ago. And even though I could give everyone on my list an Amazon gift card, the process that I go through every year is one of thinking about the person's interests, what I think they would most like to receive, and thinking about my budget, because one of the ways that we show the people in our lives that we love them is with a well-thought-out gift. It's not the only way, but it is one of the ways that we show people that we love them. We want to see their face light up when they tear back the paper and see what's underneath, and we hope that our gift to them is one that they'll remember and cherish for years to come, rather than ending up in a yard sale six months from now. And even though I think that America's celebration of Christmas is often and rightly criticized for being a little over-commercialized and materialistic, the fact is that the impulse to give gifts to those that we love is an echo of God's own character. At Christmas, we are reminded that the love at the very core of His nature expresses itself in selfless giving. And that gift that he gives us surpasses our expectations and changes not only our lives, but our eternity afterward. This morning, we're looking at this passage from the book of 1 John, and we are reminded that God's love for us, demonstrated to us in what he gives to us, is personal, very costly, and that it changes everything. John wrote this short letter to a group of churches across Asia Minor, what is now the nation of Turkey. So it is a general reminder of some core Christian ideas and principles. Rather than addressing specific issues going on in a particular town or a particular church, his goal is to speak broadly about the things that all Christians need to remember. And his main point in this short letter is that the incarnation, the coming of God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, is the ultimate expression of God's love for us, and that the recipients of that love 
of the gift that God gives to us on Christmas morning are absolutely changed by it. There was evidently some confusion among the people of the region in Asia Minor that Paul or that John rather is writing to that Jesus was either not fully God, that he was just a guy that God had chosen to bless with some miraculous power and authority, or that he was perhaps not fully human, that he was God simply sort of appearing as a human without lowering himself or debasing himself to such a humble position. And John, who was there to see Jesus as an eyewitness, who saw him prove the fullness of his divinity and die in the fullness of his humanity, wants to make sure that these people know the whole truth, and as they do, to be transformed by it. He wants them to be captivated by the magnificence of the gift that they have been given in Christ. The problem that John is dealing with in this letter is that there is a tendency to ignore the gift that God has given when we are looking for something else from Him. When we have our own ideas about what's underneath the wrapping paper, only to open it up and see something else there. I recently saw a video of some kids unwrapping gifts on Christmas morning, and they're unwrapping this one present. They're very excited about it. They think when they tear back the paper, they see a logo, and they think this is the, the latest and greatest video game system, and they're so excited to receive it, only to open the box and realize that inside the box are new school clothes. Suffice to say, they were crestfallen, to say the least, and the joke was only funny to their parents. Their expectations were high. And their frustration was significant. When our expectations don't align with God's providence, ours might be too. Our frustration might be significant as well. When what He ordains for us is different than what we long for, we are tempted to think that His love for us is less somehow than what we've been told or what we hoped that it would be. John knows that. He knows that when our expectations don't align with God's gift to us, we will will be tempted to think that His love is less. And so he writes this in verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This is it. This is how God reveals His love. This is the gift that shows us how deeply we are loved. Even though we sometimes think think things like, if God really loves me, He'll solve this problem that I'm facing. If God really loves me, He'll protect me from grief and hardship in this life. If God really, really loves me, He will give me a prosperous, happy, stress-free life. Those are the things we ask for, the things that we hope to see when we tear back the wrapping paper on our lives every day. But that is not the gift that God has promised to give us in this life. John reminds us that God's love was revealed chiefly and perfectly in the sending of His Son. Throughout this Advent season, we've spent time reflecting on the magnificent and hopeful truth that in the birth of Christ, God Himself has come to dwell with us, to be close to us, because God's love for us is personal. From the very beginning, God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and they enjoyed His presence Afterward, when sin entered the world and they were driven from him, they were driven from his physical presence because suddenly to be near him was dangerous for them. But in grace, God made a way. In the tabernacle and then the temple and then through the work of the prophets, he remained with them. 
He did not leave or forsake them. He longed to be close to these people and for them to be joyfully satisfied in his presence. But as Eric reminded us last week, he wasn't content to be among his people in a box or in a building, but in a body. For the things to be like they were before sin and evil came into the world. And so God sent his son to be born of a woman in a town called Bethlehem, according to all the promises that he'd made his people, because God's love is personal. It is not distant. He wants to be with us. The same way that you want to be with the people that you love on Christmas. Because there's a difference, and we all know it, there's a difference between sending someone a Christmas card or a gift in the mail, someone that you love, expressing that love from a distance, and getting to be with them on Christmas. We understand the difference. In the birth of Christ, God's love for you has come to you in person, so that through him, John writes, we might live. Because secondly, God's love for us is costly. Verse 10 explains that Jesus was born to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation isn't a word that we use all that often in modern life, but it is a very important word for understanding the gospel. It accepts the seriousness of sin and that before God there is a guilt inherent to humanity that must be dealt with. And it recognizes that because God is just and holy, he cannot simply ignore that guilt. Like a judge in a courtroom who would cease to be just if he ignored guilt, God cannot see sin and pretend he doesn't without becoming unjust himself. From the largest, most wicked, most dreadful rebellion against God's good rule to the infractions that we consider to be minor and trivial, the fact is that sin, all of it, demands God's just response, and ultimately it demands his wrath. But Christ has come so that we might live, so that he could become the propitiation for our sin, to accept in our place the just answer of a holy God for our iniquity. He came to take on our curse, our grief, our guilt, and our shame, to lift those burdens off of our shoulders so that he could lay them on his own, to give us new life that is out from under his own divine wrath against our sin. And he does that not by stifling that wrath, but by receiving it himself. Because the love of God for us is costly. Christ was willing to give his life, and the Father was willing to give his Son. Twice in this passage, John tells us that God sent the Son for our sake. His emphasis here in these three verses is, on, is how the Father's love for us is visible. The Father's love for us is visible in the incarnation. We, we often, and rightly, focus on and celebrate that Christ loved us enough to come here. But here in 1 John 4, we're reminded of the fact that the Father loved us enough to send His Son here. He sent His Son, His only Son, John says in verse 9, so that through Him we could receive grace and life. And we see the costliness of God's love for us in what he was willing to give for our redemption. Because the worth of something is directly related to the scarcity of its supply. That's a simple idea. 
Maybe you heard it in Economics 101 in college. It's a simple idea that the scarcity of something is directly related to its worth, but it has significant implications for us. The more of something there is, the less it's worth, and the less of something there is, the more it is worth, like a glass of water. In most situations, it's something we think so little about and give so, attribute so little value to that we don't even think about it. Like when we sit down at a restaurant and water is free, it just arrives and we don't even think about it. But if you're out in the middle of the Sahara Desert, suddenly that same glass of water becomes a lot more valuable to you. The same is true on gifts that we give. Uh, the same is true, rather, of gifts that we give on days like today. Yesterday, Jessica was putting the finishing touches on a quilt that she's been working on for the last few months. She's been getting it ready to give to our brand new nephew who was born a week ago today for his first Christmas, and it's just about finished. Now, she could have just hopped online and ordered a quilt from Amazon and had it delivered directly to his house, but she wanted to make it herself as a labor of her love for this little boy. And even if a quilt from Amazon was maybe more expensive or was made from finer materials or whatever, there's something more valuable and personable about the fact that this one was handmade for this specific person and that there is only one like it. It wasn't mass-produced, it's one of a kind, and because of that, it is more precious, because scarcity determines worth. And even though we ask God for things like good health, professional opportunities and advancement, the removal of hardships, and all kinds of other good things to happen in our lives, the true depth of God's love for us is proved in what He has already given to us, not in what we hope He will give us next. All those things that we long for and ask God to give, He has in abundance. He created the universe by speaking it into existence, and He makes life itself with a word. His storehouses overflow. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and there is no end to His treasury. We ask God to give us these things, and whether or not He chooses to give them in accordance with our will and our request is not a reliable way to discern whether or not He truly loves us. Instead, at Christmas time, we marvel at what He has already given. The one thing, the one thing that He has in limited supply, the one thing that He cannot make more of, the most precious thing that He has that is truly one of a kind. Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 21 each record a brief but memorable and incredible moment from the ministry of Jesus when he and the disciples were in Jerusalem. They were near to the temple, and Jesus was watching people come and put money into the offering box at the temple. And several wealthy people came along, and they made significant contributions. They were able to give more than most people make in a year. But then we read, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Specifically, she put in two coins called lepta. They were the smallest coins in use. They're only worth about one-twenty-eighth of a day's wages. They were almost completely worthless. But those two coins were all she had. What's immediately clear to everyone watching is her devotion to the Lord. The disciples didn't need anyone to explain that to them, for this woman to give her last two coins to the Lord as an offering. Wow, she must really love the Lord. 
But then Jesus says that she had given more, that she had given more than the wealthy donors because, she, because they gave out of their abundance and she gave out of her poverty. In God's economy, those two coins were incredibly valuable. When she gave those two coins, she proved that she loved God more than the money that they represent, the buying power that they represent, more than the things that she would be able to get with them, including dinner that night. She proved that there was nothing that she loved more than God himself. And so, Jesus says, she gave more than those who dropped sacks full of money into the collection box. When God sent his son, he gave us the most precious thing he had, the only thing he didn't have more of and could not get more of. When he sent his son to live here and die for us, he did so knowing that this was the most costly, most precious thing he could possibly give so that we could receive in the name of his son the full abundance of his love and grace the full abundance of the treasury of his storehouses. So John says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this way, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. There is no greater love than God's and no greater expression of that love than when Christ came to dwell with us and to give his life to save ours. It hasn't come as a response to good effort on our part. John is careful to remind us of that. It's the difference between God and Santa Claus. Santa keeps a list and checks it twice. He rewards the good and gives coal to everyone on the naughty list. But John says in verse 10, "In In this is God's love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We did not love God enough to convince him that we are worth saving. We didn't earn our way off the naughty list in order to receive some reward from God. Romans 5 reminds us that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love doesn't depend on whether or not we are lovely. He poured out the full measure of his costly love for us the day that he sent his son to be born in Bethlehem so that we could live through him. And as Paul writes elsewhere in Romans, sin leads to death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift because we didn't have to earn it. We couldn't have earned it, but God gave it anyway. And that costly gift changes everything. So John writes in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God has loved sinners like us in this way, and we know it, everything will change, starting with the way that we think about the people around us. We love because we have been loved. We show grace because we have been shown grace. We forgive and act with mercy because that is how God has loved us. The gospel doesn't just change the destination of our lives, to be with God rather than under his justice, though that is certainly true. It also changes the lives that we live along the way. And even if we long for God to show us his love by giving us long lives full of opportunity and celebration and prosperity, the truth is 
that when we unwrap each day, we are unlikely to find everything we put on our Christmas list. But because God's love is personal and costly and life-changing, we rejoice anyway, knowing that we are sinners saved by grace that arrived in person 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father God, as we celebrate this Lord's Day, please press the sure hope of the gospel into our hearts so that we will rest in and rejoice in your costly love for us more and more. Help us to recognize the precious gift that you've given us in sending Christ to be our Savior, to rescue us from judgment, and to deliver us into the bounty of your mercy. It is good news of great joy today and every single day. So we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.